learning to tremble. Psalm 2.11 reads, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And one of the things that we've been seeing in this series that we've been doing on the fear of the Lord is that there is a bad type of the fear of the Lord, a type that makes us run away from him, but there is also a good type that we are supposed to have as believers, that as we recognize who God is, that we come before him with a certain type of respect, not casually coming before him, but coming before him in the fear of the Lord, serving him with fear, rejoicing with, with trembling, and seeing that these two things are not mutually exclusive, but can go together. And last time, we talked about that there is, in addition to the fear of the Lord, there is also the, uh, the fear of man, the fear of other people. And this is usually what tends to control our lives, that within our heart there is a, a war between these two things, and which is heavier, whichever is heavier in our hearts, whether it is the fear of man or the fear of the Lord, will tip the scale and will control our heart, and whatever controls our heart controls our actions and everything that comes forth from that, because the heart is the, the source and the wellspring of everything else. So last week we talked about that, and we talked about some of the ways to make our fear of, of man, fear of people, smaller. Because it tends to always, it's, it's a never-ending battle, because we can get it smaller, but it'll tend to creep back into, uh, grow in size. And so we have to keep battling that. But the other side of the scale is actually what's even more important, growing in the fear of the Lord, and having a view of him that is more accurate to who he is really like. And let me just say, too, no matter how big of a box that we had in here to try and say what our fear of the Lord should be like is always going to be too small. I mean, if we had a box that uh, was up to the ceiling that is still smaller than what it should be. I mean, if we could put the entire universe on one side of the scale here that is still smaller than what our infinite God deserves to have as far as the weight he should have on our heart. But we are all growing towards that. We are all trying to increase with the amount of fear that we actually feel for him in our heart, that healthy fear, that healthy respect. So today we're talking about learning, learning to tremble more in the right way. And we're going to start by thinking about why is it that we don't fear the Lord the way that we should? Because maybe if we look at some of the reasons why, why the problem is there, both for unbelievers and also for us as believers, that'll help us to see what the antidote to the problem should be. What would be the opposite to some of these different things? So there's a lot more that we could say, and I hope it's something that you are continuously thinking about. But we're going to start by talking about why do people fear God so little? And I'm going to give you three answers I believe these are biblical, and I'm going to draw these all out of the book of Romans from the beginning chapters. So if you have your scripture, uh, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, as we look through this. And I'm going to say, first of all, that a key reason why people fear the Lord so little is because 
we suppress the knowledge of God. In other words, we, we keep God out of sight and out of mind. Let's read here in Romans 1, starting with verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the word suppress there. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his invisible power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is an incredibly important passage to understand human beings, to understand ourselves, to understand our neighbors, non-Christians in the world as well. What Paul is doing here in Romans, in the first three chapters, is he is building a case that all of us are accountable to God. And because all of us are sinners and accountable to God and we all fall short, we all need salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ. And in Romans 1, he's starting with, with the Gentiles, with uh, the people that are even not of the, the Hebrews, that didn't even have the Old Testament scriptures uh, in ancient times, but saying that even they are accountable to God. And notice what it's saying here. It's, it's saying that everyone has knowledge of God. Not a perfect knowledge of God. It's not saying that everyone has a saving knowledge of God, but everyone knows enough about God to make them accountable. Sometimes we wonder about people that haven't had uh, the Bible preached to them or Christ preached to them. And this is a passage to study if you're thinking about those issues. Because notice what it's saying here. It's saying that through creation, God has made it so that deep down, his knowledge has been clearly perceived. Look at some of the words in here again. It's saying that we know the truth, but we suppress it. We're going to come back to that. It's saying what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. It's saying that certain things about God, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, they're without excuse. They knew God, but did not give honor to God or thanks to him, and therefore, their thinking became darkened and, and futile. You realize what this means? This means that God does not believe in atheists. And that may seem funny, because we think of it the other way around, but if this passage is correct, which it is, it means God literally does not believe in atheists. And we shouldn't either, that deep down, the most hardened atheist knows that there's a God. And I would say that's the reason why some of the people that uh, write the nastiest books against God, that are the most hateful against God, uh, that are writing stuff on uh, blog posts and on the internet and are battling this, 
They are battling against something that deep in their heart they know to be true, but they do not want it to be true. And that explains why there's such, such emotion there. Because they're trying to, the word it uses here is to suppress that knowledge. Something they know is true, but they don't like it, and they're trying to, to, to push it down. They're trying to smother it. They're trying to take a pillow and put it over this and keep it quiet. Because deep down, God has wired us that we don't need sophisticated arguments. They can be very helpful. But he's wired us, even the most simple person out in an island somewhere, to just look at this world, to look at our, our, our bodies and realize, yeah, there has to be a God that made me. We know that to be true, but we choose to not want that to be true. We, because we are sinners, we suppress that knowledge. And so that's, one of the, that's the first reason I think we need to realize why all of us, we don't fear God the way we should because we try to keep him out of sight and out of mind. Some people are very actively doing this. Some people don't realize that they're doing this. But we do everything we can to try and keep ourselves distracted because when we are quiet and alone with ourselves, there's a voice that, that speaks to us that there's, there's something more. There's someone who made us, someone I should be seeking, someone that I'm accountable to, and we don't like that. That messes with this idea that we have that, that we are the kings of our, and queens of our own existence, that we are the ones that get to write our own rules, that we answer to no one. And so we suppress that knowledge. We do everything we can to not have to think about God. And whether that is you know, spending time on our, on our phones with every waking moment, keeping ourselves distracted all the time, or watching Netflix, or being involved in work, or being involved, whatever it is. So many of the distractions, because we're trying to do everything we can but to think about what's really important. Think about this. A lot of us, um, a lot of people are on social media, and maybe you're on, <clears throat> say, Facebook. You ever have it where uh, there's someone that is, you know, wanting to, to be your friend on Facebook and send you a friend request, but maybe it's someone that they, they just irritate you for uh, whatever reason or they're writing belligerent different things, and you could choose just to not uh, friend them, but sometimes you take it another step further and it comes to the point where you may actually need to they have different things where you can actually you can block someone. So they can't even friend request you anymore. They uh, can't see your stuff. You can just you know, cut them off. And I think there's a sense where that is what unbelievers are trying to do to God. They're uh, tired of his uh, friend requests. Have a relationship with me. You need, I need to be in your life. And instead, unbelievers, what they want to do is basically try to block God to not have him in life. So we don't have to think about him. He doesn't have to be this pesky nuisance to us. Now, I think that's part of the reason why unbelievers don't have a fear of God and why it says that there's no fear of the Lord before them. But what, what about believers? Is it ever the case that we sometimes don't really want God on our, on our radar? That there's maybe things that we're hearing from God that we don't really um, necessarily appreciate hearing or it kind of goes against our plans or makes us feel bad in one way or another? Well, do you ever notice too on, on Facebook, for those of you who have this and maybe you've done this, 
You know, sometimes you see things in your Facebook feed and maybe there's someone that is just always posting obnoxious things, uh, whether it's uh, you know, political or uh, whatever it happens to be where it's, just, it's bothering you or inappropriate things. Uh, maybe it's just someone that you realize, I haven't seen this person in, in 20 years and I don't really care what they've had for lunch every single day. I don't need to be seeing this. And you realize there's another little function that you can do where it's not unfriending them, but you can unfollow them. Where you, it says you remain friends, but, and they're not going to know that you've unfriended them, but you're going to stop uh, seeing things on your, on your feed from them. Let me just ask this. Are there times where we do that to God? Even as believers? I mean, we want to stay friends with God, right? I mean, we don't want to be unfriends with Him, but... He keeps telling us all these things that we don't really necessarily want to hear. Maybe it goes against uh, our, our goals that we have for life or certain things that we are enjoying, and it's making us feel bad. He's kind of cramping us. So, well, just we'll kind of unfollow, stay friends with God, but, but keep, him off our, keep him off our screen. So if you think of a reason why we don't fear God the way we should, have we been doing that to God? A second reason, we suppress the knowledge of God, we keep him out of sight and out of mind. Second reason is that we substitute the truth about God. In other words, we find a replacement God that is more manageable to us. Let's read a little bit more in Romans 1, starting with verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged, notice the word there, exchanged, they're swapping out something, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So not only do we, we try to keep God off our radar screen, but this creates, this creates a vacuum. There has to be someone that we worship. There has to be someone that we, we live for. And in a way, we all want there to be some sort of God but what we end up doing, we create a substitute. It's an idol. And in the ancient world, they would create false gods and they would worship idols. And one of the reasons they did this, one of the things that they appreciated about these idols, is they could manage them. I mean, they could make their, their offering to the idol and they could assume that they're going to receive their blessing now. I mean, this is a god that they could control. There could be a nice little relationship as long as I give them the right uh, a service to this God. He will deliver whatever results I need. If I need safe travel, I'll worship to the God of safe travel or whatever it is. And they don't have to make these demands on our life. And do you think there are times when we realize that God should be huge in our life, but sometimes we think, you know, this, this God, this is kind of inconvenient to have a God this big a God this big kind of can get in the way of a lot of different things. A God this big can really be kind of demanding. 
So there can be a real temptation to say, well, you know what? We'll just, uh, maybe a God this big, I don't really need a God this big. You know, said, what if we, uh, we just, we swap this out for maybe a, a, a different God? Maybe one that's, yeah, a little more manageable. You know, a little more portable. A little more easy to deal with. I can... He won't get in the way of these other things that I'm, I'm trying to do. And so people create a God in their own image. And it might not be a carved idol, but it might be the kind of God where you say, well, my God would never do that. You know, there might be something in Scripture that it says about God, but you say, well, my God would never say that this is wrong. My God would never say that you're supposed to do this or, or have these demands that are out of step with the world around us or out of step with my desires. My God wouldn't do that. And so oftentimes, if you're starting to talk about a, a my God, it, it might be this idle God. But we like a God like that. He's, he's easy. We can, we can manage him. I mean, a little, little God like this, he's, he's cute and he's lovable and you know, he even fits in your, in your backpack. You can take him with you where you need to go. You know, I mean, really, you could just, uh, you know, put him in your car, actually. It, he's there if you need him, so you could uh, just, you know, he doesn't need to get in the way or be such a big deal, but he, he, little God's there if, if we need him. Aren't there ways that oftentimes we do that? We change God in our minds to a God that we can manage more. You know, there are even respected theologians that have, have done this, that have said, well, God can't really be a God of wrath. God can't be really a God that would send people to hell. You know, it's, it's not like that. Let's, we, need a, we need, a they say, a smaller little God. And therefore, we, we don't end up fearing the Lord the way that we should. Let me give a third reason. We suppose the indifference of God so we suppose or we presume that God is indifferent about different things. In other words, we mistakenly think that his patience means that he will not judge sin. Let's look again in Romans, this time in chapter 2. Let me read the first five verses here. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. He's saying, we need to realize we're sinners, because we're easy, it's easy for us to see the sin in other people's lives. When they do bad things to us, oh, we'll call them out. But we're condemning ourselves, because we do the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And listen to this verse. This is the key one. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous 
judgment will be revealed. Those are some amazingly sobering words in verse 4 and 5 that we presume upon God's kindness and His forbearance and His patience. And we assume that this means that God really doesn't care too much. That God really is not concerned when we sin. And we tend to think like that. That if God was really concerned, well, he would send lightning out of the sky and, and fry us right here. But God hasn't done that. He's let us go our own ways. So it means God must not really care too much. And we see other people and it seems God's not striking them with lightning either. So we think, well, God is just a a loving, patient, kind God, and it doesn't matter what we do. Therefore, hey, it's easy to go on with our sin. Instead of repenting and turning and, and fleeing from sin and fleeing to Jesus Christ, or as Christians, getting that stuff out of our life because it's not appropriate for us as Christians. We presume upon his patience. I want to show you a, talk about a story of something that happens in the Old Testament that I think will help shed some light on this. And I think it's also a story that can strike into us a little bit more of the, the fear of the Lord. So if you have your scripture, turn over now to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's where the ark is being brought up to Jerusalem, and there's this episode that happens with a man named Uzzah with the ark. So when we talk about the ark here, we're not talking about Noah's ark. We're talking about the ark of the covenant. So yes, this is the, uh, the, the ark also from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, so if you've seen that movie, that's a fictional movie, but the ark probably did look something very similar to that because uh, we have it recorded in Scripture Uh, in painstaking detail, what they were supposed to construct the ark to look like. So it probably looked something like this. And God's presence was made manifest in the ark in a very unique and special way. So the ark was was uber holy, okay? It It was set apart. It was amazingly holy and set apart. Most of the time, it was, it was to be in the tabernacle in a place not just the holy place, but a place called the Holy of Holies. Okay, set behind a curtain. And the high priest would go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement with specially prepared for this with the blood of a sacrifice. Okay, so the ark was this amazingly set apart, holy unto God object that God commanded them to create and that God manifested himself in a very unique way at the ark. Now, if you read 1 Samuel, uh, there's a part where it talks about the ark had been captured by the Philistines. And the Philistines, uh, they, they take it to their city and they're celebrating they captured the ark. Uh, but then plagues start uh, going out upon the Philistines. And they put it in their temple and they notice that the statue of their god, uh, they get up in the morning and the head, it's fallen on the ground and the hands and the head are cut off of the statue. And the Philistines, they start panicking about this. They are getting afraid and they're sick because there's a plague that's spreading. And they say, what have we done? 
we have to return this ark to the Hebrews. And so they put it on a cart with some cows and just to send it back to them. Now, it's kind of interesting, too, that it says that they said we have to send some kind of tribute along with it. So because of the plagues also, uh, one of them said, we will send with it on this cart uh, five golden mice. And it says in one translation, and also five golden hemorrhoids. Which, by the way, okay, I don't know who will see this, uh, but if, if people that are working on the next Indiana Jones movie, are, if they happen to view this, that's a great idea. I think, you know, Indiana Jones and the Search for the Golden Hemorrhoids. Okay, that, you should read your Old Testaments. There's interesting stuff in the Old Testament. But anyways, it goes back, and it ends up at being taken to the house of Abinadab. Now, in 2 Samuel 6, David decides that he is going to go and he's going to bring up the ark from the house of Abinadab. And so he goes there with, this is a big deal thing, because he goes with 3,000, or excuse me, 30,000 men to do this. So look at this, uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim are the two angels that are on the lid of the, the ark. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So they put it on a cart. It's being uh, carried uh, they have oxen with this. And think of how many people this were. So there's 30,000, I think, uh, you know, fighting men. And you got the crowds. They're celebrating. Huge, massive parade. Everyone is just overjoyed with this until something happens. Watch what happens. And David and all the house of the Lord were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Does that that shock you? They're in the midst of this, just this celebration, doing this, this good thing, and they're bringing the ark, giving glory to God through this, and God strikes down Uzzah. God, God kills this man for touching the ark. And you realize probably what happened is they're carrying the ark. It's, it's on a cart, and the oxen that are pulling this, it must have, must have maybe hit a divot or something, who knows. The oxen stumbles. The cart wobbles a little bit. 
And Uzzah, probably without even thinking, just reacts and goes to steady it because he doesn't want the, the ark falling upon the ground. You think, well, his, his, his intentions were good. And what does God do? God strikes him dead immediately. You know, and we tend to view that and think, well, God is being unfair. How in the world is that just for God to be doing that? In fact, there are some Bible scholars that say, well, what must have happened here is that Uzzah was just uh, so overcome that he just had a heart attack and died. And people thought that God struck him down, but God would never do something like that. Of course not, because we worship a, a small little God that would never do something like that. There's some things that we need to realize that really should put this in perspective. Because I think this story actually teaches the exact opposite of what we naturally think. We need to think how unfair it was for God to do this. Let me give you some things to think about. First of all, there are detailed records in Scripture of how the ark was supposed to be constructed and how it was supposed to be carried. Sometime, if you'd like, you can turn to Exodus 25 and you can see the instructions for constructing the ark. And you'll notice in Exodus 25, in verse 14 and 15, it talks about rings and poles. And in this picture, which this is not the actual, we don't have the actual ark, it's a replica, but it would have looked like this. You see there are rings on the side and there are poles that they're not officially a part of the ark, but they're attached to it. And that's, so that, that's how you were supposed to carry the ark. That you were supposed to have uh, certain men, and it was, the scripture says it was for the Kohathites that were instructed to do this. When the ark needed to be moved, they would put the poles in the rings, and then they would carry it by the, by the poles. Now, if you're doing it in this way, you're, you're not touching the ark. It never gives any instruction for the ark to be put on a cart for an ox to do this work. People were supposed to do this, and if you did it this way, and you have a few people going around, even if one person stumbles, the thing is not going to go down. So that's one thing to consider. Uh, They were just disregarding how God said to move the ark, and they were doing it their own way. But that's not even the, the biggest thing about this, because if we flip over to the book of Numbers, chapter 4, it gives more instructions here, and it talks about the Kohathites, which were uh, parts of the, the son of Levi, and they were given the specific instructions that they were the ones that were entrusted when the tabernacle and all the holy items needed to be moved, that they were the ones that were supposed to do it. And there were very particular moving instructions. And with the ark, we already talked about the rings and the poles, but it also says that they are supposed to, when they do this, they are supposed to, verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Koath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the campus is set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So first of all, Aaron and his sons, the priests, they go in, they take down the screen that's in there, but between the holy place and the holy of holies, and they lay it on top of the ark. So it's covered, so you can't see it. 
And then not only that, it says, then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin. Now, it's kind of interesting. Different translations, they don't really know what this word means. It's some kind of animal. You will see everything in Scripture from goat skins to sea cows to porpoise skins, uh, even badger skins. Uh, we don't know exactly what animal, but, but they did. They knew what it was. So you have the second layer. And then it says, even on top of that, and spread it on top of that, a cloth all of blue, and shall put in it its poles. So before the Kohathites even moved the thing, the high priests were to go in and drape it with three different items so that it's covered. People can't see it. Then they use the poles to carry it. But notice there's other instructions. Verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come and carry these. And, and probably um, we think that Uzzah and Ahio probably were Kohathites. But it says, But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the, the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So they were given specific instructions how to do this with poles covered. And they were specifically told, if you touch this, you will die. They were warned and told, this is consequence for this. But I want to give you something else to look at, to think about. Because in verse 20, it goes even further and says, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. There it says not even touching them, not even, they can't even look on these things. They're too holy to even look at them and if you look at them, you will die. So now let's think about the story with, with Uzzah again with that in mind. Because we tend to think this is so unfair. God treated Uzzah so badly. Think of what they were doing. First of all, they were carrying it on a, on a cart instead of uh, with, the, with the poles. And they also had the thing out in the open. So not only was it that Uzzah did touch it when he wasn't supposed to, but they had this thing out there uncovered for tens of thousands of people to look at and gaze upon and to see. So if we're going to say God is being unjust, he should give justice according to his law. Should it have been one person that died? How many people should have died? All of them. Tens of thousands of people for disobeying and looking on the the holy ark that they were not to look at. Doesn't that change things? But we tend to think, well, the God... He, he, he didn't strike down everyone else, but he was unfair to Uzzah. In this story, really, was God showing more justice or was he showing more mercy? R.C. Sproul has a book called The Holiness of God. It's an excellent book. And in there he tells a story that I think illustrates this uh, point very well. This idea that we tend to presume upon the patience of God and that because God doesn't strike down with lightning every time we deserve it, we think it's no big deal. He talks about when he was a college teacher, he was teaching a uh, freshman level Old Testament class 
And he said in this class there were about 250 students. And at the beginning of the year, he explained to them, they have the syllabus, which gives the requirements and the rules for the class and when your papers are due. And he said there are three papers. And one is due at the last day of, of September, one is due the last day of October and, and November. And he said, they are due this day, and if it is late, you will get an F. Unless you are in the hospital, or if there's been a death in your immediate family, it is due, no excuses, or you get an F. And they all said, yes, they understood. End of September, day of class, he says, 225 students come in and they submit their paper. At the end of class, there's 25 more. And they're, they're kind of quaking in fear and um, they're just hanging their heads in, in sorrow, sorrow and shame saying, I, I, I'm sorry, professor, I'm sorry. We just, I, I didn't make the transition from college correctly. We didn't budget our time. We just didn't get this done. Could you please give us an extension? We won't do this again. We're so sorry. And Sproul says that he said to these students, well, it says in the syllabus you get an F, but I'll I'll give you an extension, but next time you have to make sure that you get it turned in on time. They said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes, we will. We'll get it turned in on time next time. Don't worry. Oh, we we, we love you. We're so thankful. And so they went their way. They're They're thrilled. A month later, next paper's due. 200 students turn in their paper on time. And there's 50 students this time. And they're still nervous, okay, but, but they're not necessarily terrified, okay, so they're kind of sheepish, but not like it was before. And they're, they're apologetic, saying, oh, there was a lot of stuff going on, midterms and uh, different activities. Uh, we're, we're sorry, can you please um, give us an extension? And he said to them again, you, you know the rules. This was in the syllabus. Okay, I'll give you an extension. But seriously, next time, if you do not have this in on time, you get an automatic F. And so they're, they're thankful again. Oh, Professor, you're so great. And they go their way. Next month, can you guess what happens? 250 students come to class. 150 of them have their paper. There's 100 students they just kind of, this time, not nervous at all, just kind of stroll on in, not real worried. And professor starts asking, where, do you have your papers? No, nah, professor, yeah, we don't have them, but don't worry, we're working on them. He says, all right, well, see who has their paper. Johnson, you have yours? No, I'm working on it. Okay, he gets out the grade book, F. Student's kind of shocked. He goes down the list. Smith, you have your paper? Um, no. F. And he keeps going. Can you guess what was yelled out by one of the students? That's not fair. Whereas before, they had been all respectful and delighted and all this, and now they're indignant. That's not fair. And so he calls out the student, whoever it was, Smith, did I hear you say you, you think that's not fair? He says, yes. He says, well, if I remember correctly, you didn't have your paper in on time last month. So if it's justice you want, justice you will get. I'm changing that grade 
to an F as well. Who else wants justice? And they got real quiet. Do you realize that's what we do? We tend to think of God's patience, which means that he doesn't care. And we tend to go on and go on, just racking up sin. We confuse God's patience with indifference. And so once in a while in Scripture, God gives us these stories of instant justice. Uzzah and the ark, Nadab and Abihu, Ananias and Sapphira, to remind us that this is what each of us actually deserve each and every time that we sin. And every time that God does not strike us down, that's mercy. So these are reasons why we don't fear the Lord the way we should. Reasons how to grow in the fear of the Lord, and I'm just going to give these to you. It's basically the opposites. We keep God out of sight and out of mind. So in response to that, we need to keep God in our sight and in our mind. We need to do whatever we can to keep God on our radar screen, to keep him, to be mindful of him. And it's so easy to drift away. It's so easy to just, we don't make a decision usually to say, I'm going to stop being in my Bible. I'm going to stop thinking about God. Or even I'm going to stop going to church. It just kind of happens. It drifts off. We need to be active to keep God in our mind, to keep him up front and center. I mean, he seems small sometimes because we keep him so far away. And if we draw closer to him and realize how big he is and how brilliant he is and how to have a clearer picture of him. And so we need to do that through being in the Word of God, through worshiping him, having discussions about him with, with Christian friends, spending time thinking about God, thinking great thoughts about him, disciplining our minds to do that. Instead of idolatry, instead of substituting, we need to behold the real God, the real unmodified, unfiltered God that presents himself in Scripture. That means you need to be in this book. You need to be receiving the teachings of this book, not just hearing it, but beholding God through what he has revealed to himself in this book. And part of that means not neglecting, let's say, the the table saw passages of Scripture. And we tend to go for the nice little comforting parts and the, the cotton ball passages instead of the table saw passages. And with part of this too, you know, sometimes good reading about Scripture can be helpful. If you want to read two more books, we have one more week in this series. If you want to keep this going and think more about it, two books I would completely recommend One is called The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges. The Joy of Fearing God, excellent book. Such a a godly and its uh, author and a warm, rich book. And also, once you're done with that, you can read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. But especially in Scripture itself, without, without a filter, take God for who he is. And we need to contemplate the consequences of rebellion against a God like this to realize how bad of an idea that is, to think about what it would be like 
to, to, to fall into the hands of God without a Savior. That for those that go into eternity without a Savior, they have waiting for them the, the lake of fire. Judgment and then the lake of fire. We can't, you can't put God out of your mind and out of sight forever. You're going to stand before him one day. And if you stand before him without a Savior... It says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If that's you, turn to Jesus. Repent, turn to him, embrace him as your Savior and Lord. Do that now. He's done everything that needs to be done when he died on the cross for you. You need to turn to him Accept him for who he is and embrace him in faith. And as believers, we need to recognize that we don't fear the punishment of God, but there is the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews eleven seven through 11 says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Christians, you have a loving Father, but you do not want to mess with Him. For your good, He will discipline you and do what it takes to get you back on track. And you may not enjoy it. The fear of the Lord, fearing and respecting Him in the right way, you can avoid a lot of pain and discipline. Let me give you one more. Think of the love and devotion that you should have for the Holy God who loved you enough to die to save you. Think of what, love, love leads to fear. Remember, this is a good fear. This is a, the godly fear of a child to a father. We have to think to ourselves, I, how could I betray a God that loves me that much? That we're, we're afraid of sinning against a God that loves us that much. Psalm 130. But if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We can come before him. We can come before the throne of God if we have Jesus Christ as our mediator. If we have him as our high priest that died for us, that pleads our case before God, we can draw near. And that's how we can see God closer and how we can fear him more in the right way. Because if we run away, he seems small. But if we draw close, he is bigger to us. But the only way that we can draw close is through Jesus Christ. And yet, we do not 
come before his throne casually, but through Christ we can come before his throne boldly. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Let's pray. Holy God, we draw near to you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And if it were not for him and his righteousness, and him as our Savior and our mediator, our high priest, we could not come before you, we could not approach. But we thank you so much for your great love, for washing away our sins by what Christ did on the cross, and that through him we can come close to you and approach you in love And then we can see you more clearly in what you are like. God, help us to behold you in awe and wonder and love and reverent fear. Capture our hearts. We give them to you, Lord God. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.